we will go ahead and get started. That way we make sure we've got enough time to make it through everything I want us to get through. Uh, last week we looked at Old Covenant examples of covenanting, public covenanting. Uh, so we looked at uh, various different examples and really focused on uh, the example of Josiah in his reformation in 2 Kings 23 and the, the covenant that was sworn there. And then also in Nehemiah with the covenant that was sworn among the people uh, as they were able to go back to uh, Jerusalem and uh, rebuild the temple. And what, what did we see in regards to these covenants, these acts of public covenanting in the Old Covenant? Uh, were, was there any new thing covenanted in these covenants? No. What, what were they actually covenanting to do in these covenants? If you remember. Yeah, it, 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 oftentimes it was, uh, it, it took the form of saying, we will keep your statutes and your laws and your commandments. Uh, it was a reaffirmation of the duties of the people in regards to the covenant that they were already in. Uh, but there was nothing new presented in any of these covenants. They were restatements of the covenant of grace that they were already partakers of. And so this week we're going to look at uh, whether or not this practice of covenanting is to continue in the new covenant. Um, spoiler alert, it is. Um, but we're going to see that in Scripture, and we're also going to look at some historical examples uh, in our own personal history in which we've made covenants uh, ourselves. So, Brian, can I get you to open us in prayer? Sure. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for giving us another day of life, for bringing us all here today on your holy day. We thank you because you are merciful towards us, giving us all that we have, every every good gift we know that comes from you. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us uh, during this class, you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would learn about covenants, and that we would cherish them. We pray that you would grant Pastor Josh, the words to teach, and that you would lead us all by your spirit. So we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So it's important to remember that the New Testament age was not a suitable time to expect public covenanting by God's people. Uh, there was open hostility towards uh, Christians in that early age. And so the covenants that were seen in the Old Testament, uh, they, they followed periods of unrepentant sin and backsliding in, the, in God's people. But what we see in the New Testament is now a... a period of fresh outpouring of the Spirit and great power in the church. Uh, I think Matt mentioned last week that those examples of Old Testament covenanting seem to follow periods of, of great backsliding, and that's true. It's not always the case, but it is true that they, they usually do. Uh, and so... If we're, if we're looking for a one-to-one -one correlation between the Old Testament covenant renewal and the New Testament covenant renewal, 
you're not going to get a one-to-one -one correlation uh, because they're, they're in different places. Uh, the, the Old Testament church was reaffirming these covenants after times of great apostasy. Whereas the New Testament church is experiencing an overflowing blessing of the Spirit and, and immense growth. Uh, so the, covenant, the acts of covenanting are going to look a little different. Uh, but what we do see is that the New Testament is given as the covenant in Christ's blood. And so there is an aspect of covenant renewal that is instituted in the New Testament and is publicly uh, portrayed by the act of partaking of the Lord's Supper, that covenantal meal. And if you remember when I preached on the Lord's Supper, I, I, I preached very heavily upon how this is uh, the sign of the new covenant. Um, and if, if you remember even further back uh, to one of our communions, I preached a sermon on uh, the Lord's Supper being an act of covenant renewal. Uh, and, and that's what we see here in the New Testament as the primary public act of covenanting, and that is the partaking of the Lord's Supper. So while we don't see the same type of covenanting that we saw in the Old Testament uh, done in the same way, in the New Testament, what we do have in the New Testament are certain passages that show that the practice of uh, oath and covenant are still seen as valid both by God and man in the New Testament era. So we're going to look at a few of these examples. Matthew 5.33, can I get someone to read that? Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. Alright, so this is Christ uh, speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and he affirms that you should not forswear yourselves but should perform unto the Lord all of your oaths. Um, is Christ here, because if you, if you read on, people will use this, this section right here, 33 to 37, as saying that, that we should never swear oaths or we should never take covenants. Is that what Christ is saying here? Absolutely. Um, he, he is addressing the errors of the Pharisees, uh, which was to swear by these other things in order to feel as though you are not obligated to keep your oaths. Um, he's talking about perversions of the practice and condemning those 
not condemning the practice as a whole. Uh, and you may remember from the sermon on uh, oaths and vows that uh, Christ here is actually affirming uh, oaths uh, and the swearing of oaths and the keeping of oaths. Um, and that these Pharisees, like they would go, they would go to the extreme of saying, you know, if you if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you're then you're obligated to keep it. But if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not obligated to keep it. Like they would make up these arbitrary laws uh, and say, you know, well, it, it's kind of like when you when you say something and you get your fingers crossed behind your back, uh, you know. It doesn't make the lie okay, and it doesn't make you saying you will do something and then not doing it okay, uh, and that's what Christ is condemning here. He's condemning the uh, perversions of taking oaths rather than the actual taking of oaths. Absolutely. You know, like Bob said, when you swear an oath, you are taking the curses, the punishment of breaking that oath upon yourself. You know, you can't, you can't push that curse or that punishment onto anything else. You're the one that took the oath, and so you're the one that bears the responsibility for it. Uh, that's why covenanting is so weighty. That's why it's such a weighty thing. That's uh, why you don't take covenants lightly uh, or frivolously because you are actually taking upon yourself the curses of the covenant if you do not keep that covenant that you've made. Um and so you, that's always helpful to remember, uh, especially when we're talking about covenants that we that we make personally. Um, you know, your membership covenant that you've sworn before God that you made to God, because you didn't make the membership covenant to us as the church. You didn't make the membership covenant to me as the pastor. You made the membership covenant to God, and you have an obligation to keep all those things that you have covenanted uh, before him. And otherwise, there, there are repercussions to that. There are curses that will be brought out, down upon you, uh, both temporally and, and, and spiritually. Um, you know, breaking of your covenant can lead and often does lead to church discipline. That is a very real consequence of you violating and breaking your covenant that you made. Uh, but it could also lead to uh, spiritual um, punishments, curses placed upon you. You know, the Lord may chastise you uh, greatly in your soul because of, of your violation of his covenant. 
Um, and, and so we gotta, we got to remember these things. God does not take the act of covenanting lightly, and neither can we. All right, Matthew 26, uh, 63. Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus holds peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tellest thou whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. All right, so this is something that you may not catch on when you first read this passage. And and I think I made mention of it in the sermon on oaths and vows. What uh, What is the high priest doing to Jesus right here. When when he says, I adjure thee by the living God, tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. What is the high priest doing to Christ? Kind of like someone would swear by God. He is placing him under an oath. He, he, is, he is imposing upon him an oath. And, and here we see a, a, a biblical evidence of magistrates. And, and I mean, I understand that the high priest was in an ecclesiastical role, but he also had a civil role within the Jewish society. So magistrates, but also church rulers have an authority within their position to place those whom they are over in authority uh, under an oath to answer questions. Uh, Christ responds to the high priest. You know, look at 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said... Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. If if it was sinful for people to take oaths, if oaths were not to continue under the old covenant, then Christ Himself would have sinned in taking this oath. Because he is placed under an obligation of an oath and he willingly takes that and answers the question. And if it were wrong, if it were sinful for oaths to continue, then Christ himself would be in sin here. And that's absurd, right? But we also see that if it were unlawful, if it were sinful, if it were wrong for uh, people in leadership positions to impose upon someone oaths, then Christ wouldn't have answered. He would have rebuked. Christ never lets someone stay in their sin. He always calls out their sin. And if it were wrong, if it were sinful for this high priest to impose upon Christ an oath, Christ would have let him know. He would have rebuked him. But that's not what we see here. We see Christ submits to this earthly power and takes upon himself that oath. And so we see this practice of taking oaths, of swearing oaths, even imposing oaths, continuing on in the new covenant. And Christ Jesus is uh, an example of, of this practice. So they would practice the same thing. Um, he was found on him going before a magistrate, and he was sworn to tell the truth, told him nothing but the truth. This is uh, something that today we take great. 
um, Amrit's story. So if you listen to the congressional testimony from the Amrit, they talk about bringing someone into the testimony and swearing them in. The, that act makes a huge difference in what they, how they respond. And why it makes a difference is that if they're found to be in a lie, they have perjury clauses. And the penalty was severe. Uh, so if you lie before a court, if you lie, if you've sworn in, you're sworn in that way, and you lie, then you'd be subject to penalties. So there's the same thing today. We, we hold oaths as being of heaven value. And, and there's penalties imposed when we don't live by the oaths that we swore, mm. especially in a court of law. And even the magistrate recognizes that that oath is still a religious duty. That's why it's not just do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's so help you God. <clears throat> you are taking, when you, when you say yes, or I do, or I swear, in that situation, you are making an oath to God. Uh, and so even our magistrate recognizes that this is a religious duty. These oaths are taken as a religious duty. Um, and that's why perjury laws exist. You know, it's, it's wrong to lie. But you can, you know, you can go to the police department and be interviewed by a police officer about some crime that you witnessed and you can lie the entire time you're talking to them and there's nothing that they can do about it. You know, they might try to stick you with an obstruction of justice charge, but that's not going to stick. Uh, they can't, they can't get you on perjury or anything like that. If you just, if you're just lying to them, but as Bob said, if you're in a court of law, and you have been sworn in, you have taken that oath, then there is a greater punishment upon you. Because not only are you lying to us, now you are lying to God. And that's why perjury laws exist on our books. And it's really interesting that our godless magistrate still upholds perjury laws because in an atheistic society, there's no reason why perjury should be a greater issue than just regular lying. But yet we still maintain those laws on our books because at some level our magistrate recognizes that when you say, so help me God, you have, you have sworn yourself to an oath and the, the, the punishment for breaking that oath must be more severe. Acts 18.18 18. Centrea. He had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Alright, so what is the reason why Paul, uh, as a Jewish Christian, had his uh, head shorn in Centrea? Because he was under a vow. Because he was under a vow. He had a vow. Uh, this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is seen here upholding his vows that he has made. You know, if if the if vows were to cease with the closing of the old covenant and were no longer to be continued under the new, 
what we would expect Paul to see, and remember this is Paul who a lot of his writings are about don't do what we did in the old covenant because that stuff's passed away. We're in the new covenant. You would expect Paul, if we're not supposed to uphold vows, to not continue to uphold his vow, right? And yet we see here that he does. He does uphold his vow. Hebrews six thirteen to 17. Yep. Okay, so here we have uh, Paul in this writing to the Hebrews talking about the oath that was made to Abraham and saying that it continues, uh, that this is the oath, the, the vow, the covenant that God made with Abraham saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And if you remember, uh, I think it was last week, we saw that this covenant that was made with Abraham is called what? An everlasting covenant. When God made this covenant with Abraham, he says that this is an everlasting covenant. And so, what we see here is the upholding of this everlasting covenant even into the New Testament age, meaning that covenants, oaths, vows do not cease with the closing of the old covenant and the bringing in of the new. Who are those who are the beneficiaries of this covenant that was made to Abraham? The heirs of the promise. And the heirs of the promise are his descendants, but we also know that not all of his descendants are the heirs of the promise. Uh, let's look at just his immediate descendants. He had two sons, right? Isaac and Ishmael. Who is the heir of the promise? Isaac, not Ishmael. And why is it that Ishmael is not the heir of the promise? Because he is not a, while he is a physical descendant of Abraham, he's not a spiritual descendant of Abraham. He denied the faith of his father. And that's the key to who are the heirs of the promise, it is those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So we see in Scripture that these acts of, of swearing oaths, of taking vows, of making covenants are continued in the new covenant and are upheld in the new covenant, meaning that this practice does not cease with the old covenant, right? Any questions about all of that? 
All right. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take a little historical excursion uh, and we're going to look at covenants that are important in our history. Uh, at crucial moments in her history, the churches of the Reformation engaged in public covenanting whereby they pledged themselves anew to faithful observance to God's law. Does that sound familiar? Faith, pledging ourselves to faithful observance of God's law. Does that not sound like the exact same thing that we saw in the Old Testament examples, right? The difference is we're going to see specific applications. And I would actually argue the covenants that were made in the Old, Old Testament were more expansive than what we have written in Scripture. Uh, they very likely had these more specific applications involved in them as well. Um, and so what we'll see is as we are looking to repent of sins and to uh, faithfully observe God's law, in our covenants, we're going to make specific applications in how we're doing that. And that's important because one of the requirements upon Christians is when we're repenting, we have to repent of particular sins particularly. And so if there are particular sins in the church that must be repented of, then in our act of covenanting, we must state them particularly. We cannot just be general and say, you know, we, we failed to keep the purity of the worship of God's church. No, that's why we'll see in, 15, or in 1638 in the National League and Covenant in Scotland, they didn't just say that, they said that they uh, are, are covenanting to see the extirpation of popery. You know, they're speaking specifically about the perversion of the worship of God that they are repenting of in their past, and they are saying we will not continue in those ways. So, to understand covenanting you have to have the biblical background to understand who we are as reformed presbyterians or as covenanters you have to understand our historical covenants uh, because these covenants are important even for us today so the first national covenant that was uh, taken by the Reformation Church was the Covenant of 1581. Uh, you may also hear this referred to as the King's Covenant. Um, and in the King's Covenant, the Covenant of 1581, was a covenant that the king himself swore to uphold Presbyterian government in the land of Scotland uh, and to preserve and protect the true Reformed religion. Now, there's a lot more that invo that's involved in this covenant than just that. But that's the gist of it. So what we see here is in 1581, the king himself is recognizing the true Reformed religion and is covenanting before God to uphold it, as are the people of Scotland. Was that King James? That was, yes, King James. This would have been when he was young. 
when he was still very much influenced by Presbyterians. Uh, you may you may recall that uh, King James had a tutor named George Buchanan, who was if if you get the chance to read any of Buchanan's works, it's phenomenal. The man was a genius, and he was an ardent uh, Calvinist, hardcore Presbyterian, and he was not the kindest of teachers, of tutors to King James, and I think that's why King James went away from the Reformation as he got older, uh, but he very much pressured into uh, King James the principles of the Reformation. Um, a good documentary that highlights this, and I know this isn't what the documentary is about, but there's there's like a five-minute clip of the documentary that highlights this in a great way. Um, it's called uh, The KJB, The Making of the Most Famous Book in History. I think that's what it's called. And it's a really well-done documentary about the historical uh, background that led to the creation of the King James Bible. Um, yeah. No, it's B. KJB. Uh, I mean, so so. I'm thinking KJB in Russia. Yeah, yeah. King James Bible, KJB. Um, and you you can you might have to search for it a bit. You can find it for free on the internet. Otherwise, you can pay like three ninety nine, I think, on Amazon to rent it. And it's a really it's a really good documentary, really well made, um, and it's it's not written from a perspective of uh, like a King James onlyist fundamentalist Baptist perspective. It's written from a scholarly perspective. Um, Dr. Carl Truman, you may know who that is. He's actually in the documentary giving. An interview. Uh, he's a church historian. He's a minister in the OPC. Um, yeah, he's spoken here before. I've had dinner at his house before. Um, but he's in the documentary um, talking about it. So I'd, I'd highly recommend you, you, you watch that documentary. But there's a really good section. Like I said, it's about five minutes long. That is George Buchanan and King James's relationship at that young age um, and that would have been when he signed this covenant I think he would have been 16 years old at this time um, which would have been right around the time that he took the throne from the regent um, King James no no you're thinking King Edward yeah, King Edward the Sixth. Uh, King Edward the Sixth. No, it's James the Sixth. King Edward the uh, Second, I think. Um, he died young. Right? He died young. I think he died when he was around sixteen or eighteen. Uh, but he was a he was a really sickly child as well. Um, So that's the covenant of, of 1581, the King's Covenant. The King's Covenant was then basically copy and pasted and expanded upon in the National Covenant of 1638. This is the covenant that most people uh, think of when they think of Scotland's Covenant. Uh, so it was a renewal of the 1581 King's Confession, but it had two extra sections in it, and they were legal sections. They were uh, dealing with uh, acts of Parliament where Parliament... Uh, had made these acts 
against Roman Catholicism and in support of Presbyterianism. And so this covenant is swearing to uphold those acts of Parliament as well. Um, that's why this, this whole thing right here about, about upholding acts of Parliament is why some people will sit there and say these covenants are not binding today. Or they'll sit there and say um, that the act of covenanting was a, a, a mixture of church and state and it shouldn't be done. Especially those radical two kingdom guys like Van Drunen. They would look at something like this and say, this is abhorrent. Because it's, it, it is a cooperation between the church and the state. Um, but... If you remember when we were talking about church-state relations, there is a responsibility of the church in advising the state and the state upholding the laws of God. And that's what these covenants are recognizing. Um, there was a man in Scotland by the name of Archibald Johnston of Warriston. Um, very interesting guy, very smart guy, um, kind of crazy. Uh, but he, he was not a pastor. He was not an elder. He was a lawyer. And he wrote the majority of uh, this covenant, the National Covenant. And the majority of it's those two paragraphs, which are the legal section. And so uh, Archibald Johnson of Warriston is, is oftentimes referred to as the lawyer of the covenants. Um, and that's because he did the, uh, the legal aspect of it. The National Covenant pledged those who swore it to defend the true religion against innovations such as those that had recently been introduced and that were against the Bible. We're talking about those innovations where they were bringing in bishops into the Presbyterian Church. The innovations of having to read from the prayer book in your services. The innovations of vestments worn by the ministers. Those are the innovations that are being referenced. Uh, these teachings were, were against the, the teachings of the Reformers and the Acts of Parliament that were listed. And that's why they put the Acts of Parliament in here. First off, because they were good and godly acts that needed to be sworn to and upheld but because they wanted to put on a national level in a covenant that these innovations that were being brought into the church were not only an affront to God and his law, but were an affront to the king and his law. Now, mind you, this is 1638. The king is not a friend of Presbyterians. Uh, this would be King Charles here. And uh, what's interesting though is part of this covenant is also uh, to support the king. And this is evidence that the king, even when he is not operating as he should, is still a lawful authority and is to be supported insofar as you are able. Uh, and that goes back to what we talked about in the, in the church-state relations. So the desire of the covenant was to maintain the true worship of God, the majesty of our king, 
and the peace of the kingdom for the happiness of those who swore it and their children. That's important. When you make a covenant and you say us and our children, what you're saying is this covenant is binding upon not only me, but all of my posterity, all those who follow me. Which means all children of the Second Reformation in Scotland are heirs of this covenant and are still obligated to uphold it. Now you uphold it according to the position that you're in. Obviously, we as Americans, we're not under the king, and so we're no, we have no obligation to support the king, but we uphold that part of the covenant insofar as we support our magistrates in as far as we can. Um, and so while, while situations and scenarios may change, the principle of the covenant remains, and that's what we are bound to uphold. Uh, and this, this covenant was signed at Greyfriars Churchyard in Edinburgh on the 28th of February, 1638. And uh, many people many people signed this covenant in their own blood. Literally signed the covenant using blood as ink. Because they knew that if it came to it, they would die, shed their blood to uphold this covenant. And we'll see that a little while later, they're going to have to do that. Um, after, after the National Covenant in 1638 was the Solemn Legan Covenant of 1643. This is the one that most of you are probably most familiar with because this is the one that was the first document ever produced by the Westminster Assembly. The Westminster Assembly was called in uh, 1643 and... Just a few months after its calling, this covenant was formed, was, was written and published. Um, part of the reason why this covenant was, was the first document made by the Westminster Assembly is because the Westminster Assembly requested of Scotland that delegates be sent down for advising them in the matters of uh, creating this, these doctrinal standards. And the Scots said, we will do so, but not until you make a covenant that you will uphold these things. And so that's why we have the Solemn League and Covenant. It is a league, meaning that it binds together different national entities, that is the three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Ireland, and it is a covenant that is sworn. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read let's see, I'm going to read just a, a little portion. This is section one of the Solemn League and Covenant. That we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion of the Church of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies 
the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the Word of God and the example of the best Reformed churches and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship, and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. So the reformation of religion was primary in, the, in this covenant. There are other things that they speak of as well dealing with, uh, primarily with governmental matters. Uh, but the first and foremost thing that they were covenanting to do was reform religion. And reform religion according to the scripture, as was held in the Church of Scotland at that time, which was the most pure uh, branch of the visible church in the world at that time. And here they covenanted uh, to the nearest conjunction and uniformity of religion. Our forefathers covenanted a uniformity of religion in worship, doctrine, discipline, and government. This is what our forefathers fought and died for. Because this is, this is 1643. Only about 20 years later, you're going to get the killing times. Where thousands of our covenanter forefathers bled and died for the covenanted uniformity of religion within the Reformed churches. That's why they wrote a confession of faith. That's why they wrote uh, two catechisms. That's why they wrote a directory for public worship. That's why they wrote a directory for, uh, for private worship and family worship. That's why they wrote a directory on church government so that all the Reformed churches would have the same doctrinal standards and there would be a uniformity of religion within the churches. That's why they commissioned a psalter to be made for there to be one psalter used in all the churches. That's why by this time, the authorized version, the King James Version, was the standard that was used in all the churches. Because they wanted, if you went to Edinburgh, or London, or Dublin, they wanted you to have the same religious encounter experience in the church no matter where you were. And so you could bring your Psalter and you could walk into a church in Dublin and you could sing the Psalms with them. And then you could take the boat across the, the channel and you could visit a church in London with that same Psalter and you could sing with the saints there. And then you could take your carriage up to Edinburgh and with that same Psalter, you would be able to sing with the saints there. And you knew that the singing was going to be uniform and according to the Word of God with the most pure Psalter ever 
to be published. You knew that the reading of the Word of God would be uniform and pure with an accurate translation. You knew that the sacraments were going to be administered in all the churches in a pure way, the same way, and you knew that the doctrine that was going to be taught was according to the Word of God. That is uniformity of religion. And that's what our covenanter forefathers fought and died for. Not for religious toleration. Not for religious independency. They fought for covenanted uniformity of religion. And so what we see now, and you may have noticed there, that, that this covenant is made it says that we and our posterity after us so they're taking this covenant upon themselves and their posterity what we've seen now is their posterity has broken this covenant and we are under an obligation as the sons of the covenanters as the sons of the covenants as the sons of the Scottish Reformation to seek to reform ourselves back into conformity with the covenant that we are still obligated to uphold. Because we have not been absolved of this covenant. We are still the posterity and we are still obligated to uphold this insofar as we are able. And so that means seeking reformation in our own lives and in our own congregations towards being conformed and patterned after this covenanted uniformity of religion. That means seeking to have our confession, our catechisms, our directory for worship, our directory for church government, our Psalter and our Bibles in conformity with this covenanted uniformity of religion. It's a shame. It's a shame that even within just our own denomination, we don't see a uniformity of religion. And it's an even greater shame that if you go to a, an RP church in Scotland and then you go to one in Ireland and then you go to one in Australia and you compare all four, America, Scotland, Australia, Ireland, and Australia, they look like four totally separate churches in every way because there is no uniformity of religion the the closest thing that we maintain to uniformity of religion is we still recognize the westminster standards of the confession and the catechisms as part of our doctrinal standards that is the extent of the covenanted uniformity of religion that we are still upholding we got to be fighting to go back to what we are obligated to uphold. To not do so is wrong. If you do not uphold your covenants, what did I say? What, we, we said that at the beginning. What is it if you do not uphold your covenants? It is covenant breaking, right? And what is covenant breaking? Sin. Covenant breaking is a sin. So we are obligated in every way that we can to turn away from the various ways in which we have broken our historic covenants and we are to conform ourselves back into those patterns. And then really briefly, in 1871, the RPCNA uh, made its own covenant as a denomination. 
You can find that in the constitution of the RPCNA in the back of it. Uh, unfortunately, it's been relegated to an historical section in the back of our constitution instead of recognizing that the covenant is a covenant and we're covenanted to keep it. Um, and then I think it was 1954, there was another covenant that was sworn, which Synod then went back and kind of <laughs> unswore it uh, because it was it was a strange covenant <laughs> and it's it's kind of no one really no one really ever <laughs> considers it the 1954 covenant uh, the 1871 covenant is is kind of like the last covenant that we as the RPCNA say is, is our covenant um, so when it comes to covenanting we have to remember and this is one of the reasons why covenanting is such a weighty thing it's the obligations do not end just because you don't want to keep them anymore you're still obligated to do them and if you make a covenant that is to you and your posterity, the covenants don't end just because you die. If you have bound your posterity to that covenant, they are bound to that covenant. When God said, I will be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee unto Abraham, did he just mean to Abraham? No. Did he just mean to Isaac? No. No, it was an everlasting covenant. It was to all of his posterity. It was to all of his seed. Covenants that are made as binding upon the individual and their posterity do not end just because we're almost 400 years removed from that covenant. And an example of that, and I'm not going to get into it, is the covenant that was made uh, with the Gibeonites. 400 years later, after that covenant made with the Gibeonites that they would not slay them, 400 years later, the Israelites are punished by God for not upholding that covenant and killing the Gibeonites. 400 years later. You're looking from Joshua to King David. That time frame is eerily similar to what we're seeing between the Solemn League and Covenant and now. And if God held the Israelites to that covenant 400 years later, what makes us think that He's not holding us to the covenant that our fathers swore 400 years ago? Time does not annul covenants. Fulfillment of the covenants annuls the covenant. And the fulfillment of this covenant will not come until we reach glory. This is something we have to fight for till the day we die. Yeah. By the uh, a, a a recognition that it was a sinful covenant, and it has to be absolved by the imposing authority. Yeah. Yeah. So an example an example of that would be when Bob first became an elder, he had to take a vow. Uh, I think it was vow eight uh, of the ordination vows to abstain from all uses of alcohol. That was an unlawful vow that was imposed by Synod. Synod recognized it was an unlawful vow and repented of it and lifted the obligation from those who had taken that vow to uphold it because it was unlawful and so the imposing authority lifted the vow. That's an example. So if any of the covenants were unlawful, if they were sinful, 
then though the authority imposing the covenant would have the 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 obligation to lift that covenant because you cannot be held uh, responsible and obligated to sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an important point to remember that that there are ways in which covenants can be annulled, and that is if they were sinful and they are lifted by the imposing authority. The 54 covenant annulling the 71 covenant? No. Um, because because it's not it's not that there's contradictory like the fifty four covenant doesn't address things in the eighty in the, in the uh, seventy one covenant and say we were wrong in these things and this is what we're doing. Uh, the fifty four covenant is just really weird. Like it doesn't even take the structure of a covenant, and it really seems. This isn't just my opinion. This is the opinion of some well-studied, learned men in our denomination, it really does seem that the the 54 covenant was a last-ditch effort of kind of the old-school blue-blood covenanters in our denomination to get a new covenant on the books. It, it, that's really all it seems like they were trying to do. Um, and it doesn't even take the structure of a covenant. All right, we've gone longer than I anticipated. I'm sorry. Um, are there any other questions or comments really quick? All right. Well, Matt, can I get you to close us in prayer? Amen.